0: Hello and welcome to the Culture File Weekly. Is that December I'm feeling in my Mouse Finger edition? I'm Luke Clancy, and ahead of us this time, curator and artist Jenny Guy on Art School, her long running plot to bring contemporary art and contemporary school kids together. The wicked world of Irish American art traffic, Maurice Gohan on lockdown cooking, and Rob Long keeps his eye on the bill in his latest martini shot. But before that, was there ever a spectacle like the 1893 Chicago World's Fair, a happening so happening that it pioneered the Ferris wheel and the Hoochie Coochie, as well as offering visitors not one but two genuine Irish villages. Art historian Ema O'Connor guides us through the swings and roundabouts in her recent book, Art, Ireland and the Irish Diaspora, a transatlantic history of Irish art over the four decades between the two world's fairs, Chicago 1893 and New York 1939. It's the story of an emerging and surprisingly international Irish art world with champions on both sides of the pond. (laughs)
1: The two rival Irish ladies running the Chicago World's Fair were Lady Ishbel Aberdeen and a woman called Mrs. Ernest Hart. Lady Ishbel Aberdeen had been the Viceroy's uh, wife, uh, the Viceroy in Ireland in 1886. They came back again a few years later. And Mrs. Ernest Hart was a doctor's wife running the Donegal Industries Fund. It's a great story. It's the first time that an Irish village was built. There was only meant to be one. There ended up being two. There was fierce competition that ended up in the newspapers actually over the Blarney Stone. But the real thing was the representation of Ireland and the real Irish people who were brought in to make lace and make butter and essentially run the villages. It was a very important representation of Ireland to the expat community in Chicago at the time. In Lady Isabel's Aberdeen's village, they had a mock-up of the Blarney Stone and they were selling it as the Blarney Stone. And of course, there was a lot of rivalry between the two women. So she went to Colonel Calthurst who owned the Blarney Stone? Who wrote a letter to say that is not the real Blarney Stone in the village? And of course, that ended up all over the newspapers. It was all—it um, was all a bit of a laugh, really. But at the end of the day, they both did their job. And in fact, Lady Aberdeen's actions in Ireland brought an awful lot of money into Irish cottage industries. It was very good for women. In fact, it really brought a lot of money in for the lace-making industry, for instance. I found myself admiring Lady Aberdeen. I have great uh, admiration for her. I really liked um, Mrs Hart, but I have a huge affection for Lady Aberdeen. She was the person that turned Dublin Castle into a Red Cross hospital, and that was the Red Cross hospital that James Connolly was brought to in 1916.
2: I was really captivated by the story of an art world that to us seems insular, but in fact was hugely connected to the Irish in America.
1: I began research for the book in the summer of 2013. I applied for one of the writer's rooms in New York Public Library and took myself off for the first time in my life for three months. I found John Quinn's papers, which were fascinating. John Quinn was, um, well, he, he was born in America, but his parents were Irish. His mother was from Cork. His father was from just outside Dublin and John Quinn became a well-known lawyer and art collector, specifically Irish art collector, uh, with contacts with every artist and every writer in Ireland at the time. And because of him, it meant that other galleries in the 1920s began to import uh, uh, the work of Irish artists and sell it very well. Helen Hackett being the first one. Helen Hackett ran what was a very famous gallery in New York. She came to Ireland in uh, the summer of 1929, and I'd just like to read you a piece she particularly wanted to meet George Russell, A.E. He at the time was up in Donegal. It wasn't easy, after several hours we discovered him, care of Mrs Law, Marble Hill, remote and far from the world. Mrs Law's cottage and oasis in the desert, everything in it reflected culture and discrimination. And once more, that unforgettable experience to listen to A.E. talk. I remember this sensation six years before when I met him for the first time in Dublin. To listen to A.E. is to hear monastery bells softly pealing. It is twilight and all else is still and low reverberations soothe and caress you. The mere sound of his voice carries you off to lands unknown. I became entranced with the music of it. I forgot to listen to what he was saying and A.E. was always interesting. I was reading from... Helen Hackett's journal of her visit to Ireland in the summer of 1929. I found it in the family archive in the basement of a house in Washington, having done some research online to find the family. It has never been published before and it is published in full in the book. And it makes fascinating reading in terms of the the culture and the activity at the time in, in Ireland.
2: How does it feel to come across a gem like that when you're researching? For me... It's like she breathes life into a chapter of Irish history that can often be quite wooden in the telling.
1: What fascinated me about finding the journal was not only her description of the art and artists, but her description of the social mores at the time, a time that we understand to have been very poor in Ireland. She was eating the best of food and drinking the best of wine and buying the best of silver, so it shows you a whole other side of Irish life that I certainly knew nothing about as an historian.
2: I loved the way she kept getting distracted from her quest for Irish life and just going shy for antique silver. And that's
1: fantastic. I'd love to know where that silver is, actually, now. You know, it's the real Miss Markle and me.
2: One of the things that I discovered from reading your book is that John Yates, Daddy Yates father of William and Jack B, the artist, did a runner in old age and ended up in New York. He did.
1: John B. Yates did a runner on money raised, interestingly, by Hugh Lane and Sarah Cecilia Harrison to send him on holidays to Italy. His daughter, Lily Susan, was going to New York in the summer, that summer of 1907, to sell lace at an international fair organised by John Quinn dad decides to go with her and when she goes to leave he just refuses and she left six months later in 1908 and he never came home again he died there in 1922 under the watchful care of John Quinn he never saw his daughters again although he did see Jack and William again and there's a lively series of letters between the entire family in New York Public Library.
0: O'Connor there talking with Eleanor Flagg and the music you heard comes from the 2018 album Souvenir Music from the World's Columbian Exposition of 1893 and was revived from the sheet music sold at the Chicago World's Fair of 1893 by composer and musicologist Dan Meyer of Lake Forest College and there was a lick of Debussy in there too Art, Ireland and the Irish Diaspora, Chicago, Dublin, New York 1893 to 1939 Culture, Connections and Controversies by Ema O'Connor is published by Irish Academic Press.
1: you off to lands unknown.
0: Now, a lockdown chowdown next with writer and comedian Maurice Gohan, whose latest lockdown, this time in Spain, has led her to think again about the real meaning of unnecessary kitchen devices.
3: I spent my first lockdown on a farm in Kilkenny, and I'm spending my second one in the south of Spain. I think it's good to experience different lockdowns. It's the new doing a semester abroad during college. Oh, they don't even care about toilet paper during a Spanish lockdown. All nod, all cultured. They have bidets. I've been cooking a lot during the second lockdown because Spanish have high quality ingredients. And that's not being shady, so do we. Just different things. We do meat and butter really well. It's our thing. No one can come near Kerrygold. That isn't sponsored unless my passport is sponsorship. When I lived in LA, they sold Kerrygold in high end supermarkets for $7 a stick. And it was always out of stock. That's how good it is. Forget the 1916 rising. We should be teaching kids how to churn butter in school. It's our forte i'm all about the basics in cooking and that's what someone says who doesn't really know how to cook i'm into simple cooking i say because i can't pronounce faux grass and i don't have the wrists for a roux eggs i can do eggs soft boiled but not all the time sometimes i scramble or fry I will die in a sword for eggs. They're cheap and easy and so tasty. I don't know any other ingredient that does so much with so little. Eggs are universal. During the Treaty of Versailles, if someone served a quiche, I'm sure we could have prevented World War II. Because I'm now Rachel Allen, complete with that weird accent that soothes and annoys you in equal measures, I now love researching cooking gadgets. Things that make cooking easier and better. What's the difference in a frying pan or a wok? Not a lot, but also a lot. A pot and a Dutch oven? Similarly, nothing, but also everything. I browse cooking gadgets on the internet for hours. Discovering how outdated I am for cutting an apple with just a knife, like a savage. Why spend five minutes dehusking your corn when you could buy a utensil that does it for you in four? It's really opened my eyes. My next purchase is going to be a rice cooker. Did you know Asians don't cook rice with a pod like us idiots? They use a machine designated to cook rice. Asians have the best rice dishes. They know what they're doing. Here we are stressing about the water, opening the lid and closing it, draining liquid away when it's too soggy. We thought we were smart with rice in a bag. And Asian people laughed because they had so much time on their hands because their rice was being cooked for them. I know the secret now and it's a rice cooker. Cooking gadgets aren't new, of course. When I was growing up, the gadget that changed life as we knew it was the George Foreman.
0: Hi, I'm George Foreman, and this is my lean, mean, fat-reducing grilling machine.
3: That turned the landscape of Irish cooking on its side. It became a portrait of Irish cooking. Lean, mean, fat grilling machine. I'm so proud of it, I put my name on it. I didn't know who George Foreman was when I saw the ad, but I knew from his tone that his name meant something, and he was putting it on that grill. Every Irish family bought a George Foreman. We grilled chicken on it and then didn't continue to grill chicken on it because it was too dry. One time I tried to put a slice courgette on it and it burned. But I felt alive trying something. The George Foreman was like the sunny D of the gadget world. It came in from America and we bowed to it. And for a brief few months we were in love. Until some mothers told other mothers how bad it was, and we all panicked and threw everything out. Still, sometimes I'll see a George Foreman that slipped through, one out there in the wild, and I'll slap a sausage on it. Sausages always worked. Sausages aren't as universal as eggs, but when you put the two together, I think you create a vaccine.
0: Maurice Gohan there with a possible major scientific breakthrough, though, let's not get all excited about a preprint. Jenny Guy's art school is both exactly what it says on the tin... not that. The project is what the curator calls a platform for bringing artists of all types into educational sites, there to create collaborative work, and in the process close the gaps between the world of contemporary art and a brand new public. The long-running project has now been documented in a book called Curriculum, Contemporary Art Goes to School, which makes this a good moment to take stock of what the project brought to school and what it took home, on your Gallagher reports.
4: It's so funny, I get this kind of flood of like, oh, but there was Maria McKinney. She's working, you know, with semen straws and turning them into sculptures and putting them on the back of, you know, pedigree bulls, bringing these like amazing artistic mediums into schools and just kind of showing them effortlessly. My name is Jenny Guy. I am the founder and director of Art School, which is a project focused on exploring contemporary art in schools that I've been working on since 2014. And I'm the editor of the book Curriculum Contemporary Art Goes to School, which was just published this autumn. And I'm also a curator, an artist, and a writer. As a curator, you know, often people associate curators with working in museum or gallery contexts but I was just really interested in the school as a site of production or a site for making work or in collaborating. The students, for example, they're collaborators, but they're also the new audiences for contemporary art. It's been really amazing to be able to bring artists, like really exciting artists, into schools where they kind of come in And it's not that they are trying to explain the medium. This kind of distance that sometimes we feel that we have between art and what it is and trying to understand it, it just gets kind of, you know, completely demystified. Kind of the ice is broken where you have, you know, an artist coming into the school and they're they're simply talking about their work and then they end up kind of collaborating with students and in some cases co-author a work. Like Rona Byrne... She's a really exciting artist. She introduced students to the study of proxemics, which is something that's really active and and, and live in, in her own work. Proxemics basically explores boundaries and thresholds within the space of the school and as they relate to kind of comfort and personal space. School
3: spaces, they're probably very generic in one way. Like we all think about the classroom, the corridor, school halls, yards. And the, the images that we think about when we think about them are probably all fairly similar, that we're all conjuring up. Did any of the artists or students, did you think that maybe there was a bit of a difficulty in bringing contemporary art
4: into a space that's so generic? I guess before each project kind of begins, there's um, like a series of site visits to kind of get that kind of sense of where the artist was going to be working with the students and also get to kind of meet the students as well. So then... The artist would then kind of go away with this, I guess, geography of the school and what it is. And also with their former memory, often of their own school or, you know, that kind of embodied sense of like, oh, God, school, you know, what what's, you know, I'm going back to school. I mean, Rona Burns' way of working with um, installation, it's all about space and interrogating that space again some of the workshops and conversations that she had took place in the in the classroom but then we had this kind of ability or this kind of permission to kind of spill out of the classroom into other parts of of the school through the artwork so together they were kind of interrogating what parts of the school made them feel comfortable In, in one of the um workshops that Rona was working on that were looking at like the school concourse which was kind of the, the entryway to the school and that during break time it got super busy so with Rona when she was exploring proxemics this kind of study around boundaries and thresholds they turned the concourse as an intervention, as a performance nearly, you know, during one of the school breaks into a a roundabout. So there's images of in the book, actually, where like students are basically, they've created this roundabout and they've got arrows on the back of their school sweaters. And even going into the school, there's like an in and an out. That was all kind of part of this performance.
3: Or contemporary
4: art is maybe one of the subject's which actually
3: allows access for politics and social issues to be explored, maybe easier than any other subject that a student might study.
4: In a way, yeah, artists synthesise so many different fields of research into their own work and ways of working. Again, I was thinking back to, you know, Rona working with proxemics and personal space and what that is and how it relates to, to now and COVID. What was the idea of then the publication Well, the book's title is Curriculum, Contemporary Art Goes to School and I'm the book's editor. I conceived of the project in 2017 and the book explores the projects that I organised through art school which involve artist residencies and workshop that took place in schools around Ireland between 2014 and 2019. So the essays the book contains, there's 13 of them, are written by leading writers from both Ireland and abroad.
3: And then I guess with the audience, who are you hoping would read this book? Is it other artists or is it
4: educators or students or is it anyone? Anyone who is interested in art and, and education. You know, artists definitely, you know, for writers, for curators, for teachers, for parents, anyone really who is interested in contemporary art, its effect socially in the broader sense, but it's also a very front facing, kind of hopeful book and that here are these artists going into schools working with these, you know, younger generations and, and so they're getting this glimpse into the kind of critical thinking and way of making art. And I think that's just really amazing way to kind of face the future where, you know, these younger audiences are getting access to an understanding of our country's really exciting artists.
0: Jenny Guy there on Art School, and Anya Gallagher was the reporter. More on all the iterations of Art School on JennyGuy.com. That's Jenny with an I-E. And the book Curriculum Contemporary Art Goes to School is available from IntellectBooks.com. Amidst all the melancholia induced by not going out for brunch or lunch or dinner, you know, because of the thing, is there a chance we're forgetting some of the deep sadness that can be suffered if you actually go to a restaurant? And I'm thinking here about The Bill, which by no real coincidence, Rob Long too is thinking about this time.
5: This is Rob Long with Martini Shot. A few years ago, I had dinner with an actor and his manager. I was trying to woo this actor to take the lead role role in a television pilot I was producing. A pilot is what we call the first or test episode. If the pilot looks good, then the network will order more. And one way to get the pilot to look good is you cast a star in it. And this particular star liked the part. He liked the script, but he was a little hesitant about signing what was essentially a six-year commitment in Success, that is. The truth is that television pilots have about a 98% failure rate, and the successful pilots that go on to a series, well, they have about a 95% failure rate. Now, I'm not what you might call a numbers guy, but I do know that if you take a 95% failure rate and somehow put it inside a 98% failure rate, you get disaster and chaos and bankruptcy and financial collapse and clinical depression and, well, you get the television business, in other words. But that's not a terribly inspiring pitch to an actor contemplating doing a television series. Hey, look, this thing isn't going to go. Just do the pilot and move on. People like uplifting messages. And also, you know, his manager was really pushing him to do this. He really wanted his client to do this pilot, not only because it was a great piece of writing and because of the sterling reputation of the writer and the creator... <clears throat> me, but because there's a little thing called the producer's fee which a lot of managers get for delivering their client to a project. Plus, they get a cut of the client's fee, plus a percentage of the eventual profit of a hit TV show. Well, well, they ask for that. They don't always get it. But, in fact, you can see the whole reason for the dinner in the first place was because his manager had set it up. His manager had insisted. He set up the dinner. He made the reservation. He ordered the expensive wine. He took charge. He was doing his part to make this happen. So, Pretty much everybody at the table was pushing the actor to say yes, especially the actor's representative. Now, just to be clear, it was an expensive restaurant. I mean, we ate well. We drank good wine. We wined and dined and wooed and schmoozed, and the actor at the end said he'd think about it. Now, he left before the rest of us something about a wife and kids and obligations, and so I lingered for a few moments with his manager, which is when the check for the expensive dinner that the manager had arranged and organized and insisted upon arrived we have got to get him to do this the manager said to me plaintively the check just sat there let me repeat this was a dinner set up instigated arranged and de facto demanded by the manager it is such a great part for him the manager said again and the check just sat there but somehow louder i ignored it he says he wants to do independent films, but there are no independent films that are calling. The check started screaming, actually, and he ignored that. I just... You know, I just, I don't know. I thought the dinner and a nice bottle of wine, at which point the checks started to dance around the table, and we both ignored that. You know what I'm going to do, the manager said? I'm going to talk to him right now. And the manager jumped out of his seat and raced out of the restaurant where the actor was waiting for his parking valet to bring the car around. I could see them through the window, talking and talking and nodding, and then the actor's car pulled up, and then they hugged goodbye, and then the actor drove off... And then the manager's car pulled up, and then the manager drove off. So the check and I were left alone at the table, and the check, if it's possible, was laughing at me. And that's it for this week. Next week, we will remember the best party ever. For Martini Shot, this is Rob Long.
0: And Rob brings to an end this edition of the Culture File Weekly. We'll be back with more performative accounting next Saturday tea time. Till then, bye now.